Good morning. If you want to get a head start this morning, because I know you all brought your Bibles because you're all learning the Word of God and you know it and you bring it with you to church, right? Go ahead to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time in there. A lot of other scriptures I'll have on the screen today. Um, As Tyler said, we're doing a series just reflecting on the events leading up to Easter Sunday, uh, the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And obviously, as Christians, we celebrate that. It's our big holiday every year. Actually, um, Easter is a Sunday where the population in this room goes up by at least 25%. Uh, We'll probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of four, I would guess, 450 uh, to 500 people here on Sunday. Uh, Maybe a little optimistic, but we break 400 every year. And so what that means for you is there will be lots of guests there's going to be limited parking and space, and so we need to be just aware of that, that it's coming, that we're uh, being hospitable to people that will be visiting us that day, uh, as well as just being welcoming and squeezing together and those kind of things. We'll do what we can do to make more room, but it's a big day uh, that we celebrate, and that last week I started talking about that week leading up to Jesus' death. Some, some groups refer to it as Passion Week. A huge portion of all four Gospels is dedicated to what Jesus did in those final days leading up uh, to his death. And um, so we're, we're in the middle of that. A couple things, uh, uh, myself and my wife, Jannie, and Jen Rebo, who leads our prophetic team, we're going to be traveling to Greece. We're leaving next Saturday, and we're going there to participate in a leadership conference for regions beyond. They asked the senior leaders from around the world to join them there. And I mean, they get people from all over the world and we all throw funds in together and things like that to help get some of the leaders from poor nations together. And we gather together and uh, just really a sense of expectation for what's going on in Greece uh, where when we get together, um, just really asking God for direction for uh, the future and things like that. So I would appreciate your prayers uh, while we're in Greece. We really, there's an expectation really. The communication about this gathering in Greece uh, has been very had a very strong sense of expectation about it. So we would just appreciate your uh, prayers and thoughts while we're gone. Uh, there will also be uh, leaders from Missoula and Spokane as well. Brian and Margaret Acey from Bozeman will be there. Uh, so it will be a good time for all of us to get together and, and be hearing from God and seeking and building relationship, etc. Another thing that's coming up right after Easter, uh, pretty much annually we've had a team going to South Africa working in an area we call the Trans-Sky. A number of different connections, a lot of stories. Many of you are familiar with the situation there, but uh, Owen and Becky Voigt are leading a team there towards the end of April, and they have some additional construction projects that they're going to be working on. Uh, The one I would particularly draw your attention to is uh, what we call a mamas, and they're these African women in these communities that have these small facilities, and a lot of kids come there after school, um, there's, they have Bible training, they do schooling, they look after uh, certain, uh, you know, met, not necessarily medical, but just some day-to-day uh, care for these kids and whatnot. And we've been involved with some of those situations. Soup kitchens have been in those locations. Anyway, one of the roofs collapsed on one of the portions of one of Mama Christina's building, so they're going there to do some work. If you, uh, if, you know, if God stirs your heart to give towards that, uh, we would appreciate you do so. Or if you have any other questions about it, uh, Mrs. Voigt, would you please stand up? Becky is right here in the middle in the back, and she can answer any questions that you have about that trip to South Africa. So we just so appreciate those guys year in and year out leading an effort to make a difference 
in, in that place. So there you go. Okay, as I was saying, we're talking about Easter and events leading up to Jesus' resurrection. Last week I started in that, you know, that Monday, Tuesday, uh, even Sunday possibly, depending. Uh, some of the dates and the way the dates line up between the Gospels, there's some discrepancies, some questions about exactly which day, what happened, and whatnot in those weeks. And for most of us, that's pretty much irrelevant. But there are definitely some strong debates out there about how the progression of things happened throughout that week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, I won't spend a bunch of time diving into that, but I will touch on it just a little bit. We talked about Jesus cleansing the temple last week. And we talked about what a significant act it was and his zeal for his temple, the place where God's presence was, but also how he was starting to lay the groundwork for a major transition where we would all become the temple. Every single one of you is the temple. It's no longer a particular physical location where the presence of God dwells, but actually God comes and dwells in all of us. Significant thing that Jesus brought to the picture. You have to think about what that must have been like from creation up till that point where God was generally seen as being in a particular location. Of course, we know all the while he was everywhere seeing everything. But a major shift happened with the concept of the temple with what Jesus did. And, and Jesus wants our temple clean. He doesn't want idols in his temple. And he wants to reside in each one of us. His presence, his power, his worship taking place in each one of us. And we took a good look at that last week. We talked a little bit about his triumphal entry. Uh, we also talked about connections with Passover, which is something that I'll dive into a little bit more today. Um, and then a, a thing we, you know, we, we like to give labels to certain things in Scripture so that we can understand them and know what we're referring to. Um, words that come from systematic theology or different things. One of them is a thing called the Olivet Discourse, which is a bunch of teaching that Jesus did regarding the temple and also the end of days. And we saw how multi-layered God's Scripture can be. Today, I want to talk about what we call the Last Supper. And it is the night that Jesus is betrayed. Um, and it's, it's getting towards the end of the preparations for Passover. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about it because I'm a nerd, and I like nerdy things, and I like looking at the uh, connections of Christ to the different ways He fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so on the week that Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's getting very near to His death, the, they're preparing for Passover, the Jews are, where they're celebrating this feast. I talked about it last week, but I'm just going to skim it for those of you that missed it last week. Passover was an annual celebration of the Jews, where they celebrated God delivering them from Egypt. And the angel of death passed over them, did not, did not kill them like he did a bunch of the Egyptian, Egyptian firstborn. Whoever had the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorposts, the angel passed over them, spared them. And so they celebrated that every year to remind themselves that God had delivered them. And so there's, there's hundreds of thousands of Jews descending into Jerusalem. It's a chaotic political time. It's a very um, tense atmosphere with Roman occupation and them trying to fulfill their festivals. And they're looking for a Messiah who's going to deliver them from this Roman rule. Or so they thought. And Jesus is stirring things up that week. Now, when it comes to Passover, we talked last week that, you know, it's a, on the 10th of their first month, they would select a lamb. 
on the 10th of the month. Now, this is kind of important. They would select a lamb, and they would bring that lamb home with them, and that lamb would stay with the family till the 14th of the month, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. On the 14th of the month, they would sacrifice that lamb. All of them would, you know, they'd, they'd do it as a family. Sometimes whole groups of people would collect together and, and purchase a lamb for that group. And this is important because there's a lot of connections between what Jesus was doing. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry, the whole, you know, they're laying out the, the branches in front of him and saying, you know, hail the king, basically. They're welcoming him in. They're acknowledging him for who he really is. They're, it sounds like they're accepting him. You would think like the next day they're going to try and crown him king or something. But ironically, by the end of the week, they kill him. But that's what was happening with the lambs simultaneously in the Jewish tradition. This lamb would come home and live with this family, and it would be inspected to be without spot or blemish for several days. And in their language, it would go from being a lamb to your lamb. You owned it. It became yours. And so that when it was sacrificed, it was being sacrificed on your behalf. And you start to see the connection that Jesus was the lamb. And when we choose him as our lamb, and we identify he's He's taking our place. He's one of us that's taking our place and dying. We might die vicariously through him and be saved. That death would pass over us. Amazing foreshadowing in this feast about what Christ did on the cross. And it's so important to put yourself in the shoes of the Jews that were watching this unfold. Because all of these little things that Jesus is doing are connecting with things they've been doing for 1,500 years. It's amazing. The night, there, there is some controversy about whether or not Jesus was crucified at the same time that the lambs were being crucified or being sacrificed or whether or not it was the next day. And it has to do with the controversy surrounding the Last Supper. But to me, that's not, and for us in the context today, it's not necessarily relevant to the conversation. Either way, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb regardless of exactly how it played out. Because John's gospel differs from the other three. The other three talk about the idea that when, Jesus, when they do the Last Supper, it's actually after the lambs have been slain and they're beginning the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they were, they're having what they call the cedar that night. They're having their meal in celebration of the Passover. But John gives an indication that it was the day before, which his also makes some sense because that means that the next day when he's being crucified, he's being killed at the same time these lambs are being sacrificed, which would, be, would make sense as well. But we don't really know. It will forever be argued exactly how this played out and whether or not the Last Supper was a Passover meal for sure or not. We're never really going to know. But either way, it's the fulfillment. It's Jesus beginning to demonstrate that a new agreement is about to be made with mankind. Everything is about to change. When they would gather together, and, and, you know, the, the, when you read the Jewish laws, God gave them a lot of specific things. But after, year, after 1,500 years, they expounded upon it significantly, not unlike us. 2,000 years after Christ, we have a lot of stuff stacked on top of what Jesus originally taught. And every once in a while, it's helpful for us to go back and examine what we're doing and see if it's actually biblical. We're, we're what we call a Bible-based church. The foundation for our truth comes from the Scripture. But oftentimes when you examine the way we behave as Christians, some of our traditions, some of the ways we do things aren't necessarily founded in the Scripture. They're just ways we've developed in order to worship 
over the 2,000 years since he was sacrificed. And every once in a while, I think it's kind of fun to look into those and see if they still make sense. But the Jews had added a bunch of different stuff to this meal situation. And even today, they continue to celebrate it. And one of the things they do is they, you know, we talk about at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup of wine, right? Well, the Jews had four cups, four cups of wine. And they were remembering this Passover. Remember, this is the point of why they're doing it, to remind themselves of what God had done for them. And in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, which is early on in the scripture where we're looking at the story of the Passover, or that's where it took place, and then God's giving some instruction. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So what the Jews would do, they'd have four cups of wine, and they would celebrate four points out of this scripture. They would drink from one of the cups, and it would be remembering, I will bring you out. We'll take you out of a people. The second cup was, I will free you. I will free you from the bondage. You will be a free people. The third cup they would drink is, I will redeem you. Or ransom you, if you will. I will take you as my own people was the fourth cup. They do four different cups in remembrance of what God did for them in Egypt. And all these significant points about what he promised them. About what he told them about himself and what he would do for them. When Jesus took the cup, as we read in the stories, particularly John, the book of John doesn't record it at all. He doesn't record the Last Supper in the way that we see it in the other Gospels, and each of the three Gospels records it just slightly differently. For whatever reason, John didn't feel necessary to include some of those details when he accounted for it years later. But the important thing that I really want to focus on about why this is so significant, why What's the big deal with the Last Supper? There's hardly any information about it. They're very short passages of Scripture. Uh, Paul refers to it once in 1 Corinthians. What, What is the big deal about this? Well, it's a big deal because Jesus was beginning to institute a new covenant. Your Bible is divided into two portions. Did you know this? Because I know you've read it all, right? And the smaller portion in the last part is called the New Testament. Why is it called the New Testament? It's 2,000 years old. That sounds old to me. Why is it the New Testament? Because there was a certain agreement from 1,500 years before the coming of Christ that God had with his people. It's called the Mosaic Law. It was, it was a covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's a contract. It's a very, it gives the implication of a very strong agreement. An agreement really, in biblical terms, an agreement in blood. You know, I was just listening to some uh, history podcasts that I like, and yeah, man, in the old times, man, they did crazy things. Like they'd make a treaty with a group of people, and they'd, they'd do the, you know, like the blood brothers thing, or they'd drink each other's blood or whatever as a sign of this treaty that they were making. It was a, an agreement in blood, symbolizing the idea that if we break it, we die. That's why we say in marriage, till death do us part. It's a covenant. It's a a deep agreement. And God made 
several covenants in the Old Testament. We'll look at a few of those. But at the end, after 1,500 years of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, uh, this, this idea where this, the, the, the nation of Israel is born out of this covenant with Moses, um, that was the Old Covenant. We call it the Old Testament. Jesus, on that night, takes that cup and he calls it a new covenant, a new agreement. I'm about to make a new deal with mankind. I'm going to change the rules of the game. God is going to relate to his people in a new way. This is so powerful and significant in the story of history of mankind. It, it just it can't be undervalued in any way. It's so amazing what God has done. God did make other agreements with mankind. People, again, debate about how many covenants there are and what they were. And God made a covenant with man at the flood with Noah. I won't flood the earth again. By his own sovereign power, he made an agreement. It required nothing of man. He just said, I will do this. I will not flood the earth again. I won't wipe out mankind like this again. It was his agreement that he made, and he would uphold his end of the bargain, although we really didn't have much to do with our end of the bargain in that covenant. He had a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the beginning of this, really where the idea of faith starts to become clear in the stories of the Scripture. God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And God gives all these promises to Abraham. Abraham's an old man with no children. And they basically, you know, they almost find it funny. One time Sarah laughs at what God promises. You ever laughed at something God promised? Oh, <laughs> that'd be nice. We do, don't we? And yet God said, I'll show you. And, he, and he, he made a covenant with Abraham. And it's interesting in the story of that covenant. I can't get into all the details. But basically, there was a sacrifice. There was the shedding of blood. That was the significance of covenant. And God basically knocked Abraham out so he couldn't fulfill his half of that agreement, walking between these sacrifices. It was like symbolism of, you know, my life for the life of these sacrifices if I break my deal with you. And yet God shows us again in his agreement with Abraham that I will fulfill my promise. I'm the one that will uphold this agreement. I will uphold my promises to you. That sounds like a really good deal. Because what we find out later, God makes a covenant with Moses. And all the Israelites, and this is where we see the laws of the Jews start to come from God to the Jews. And man, they are tough. We start to understand the nature of God and the holiness of God. We understand God in greater depth because of all the law that was given. And so this law foreshadows the coming of Christ. In hindsight, we see that Jesus is a fulfiller of this law. That so much of it was prophetic towards what he was going to do in his creation and for his people. But the problem with the law, and we'll look at this in Hebrews, is that it was weak. And it was weak because it depended on us. We had a part to fulfill in that agreement. To walk out these laws, to fulfill these statutes, to offer these sacrifices, to do all these things. And yet, as you and I know very well, men are weak. We have a hard time keeping our promises. We have a hard time doing the right thing. We have just a really hard time. And it wasn't going to work. And God knew this, but he's foreshadowing. It was necessary. We, sometimes we ask this question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did it have to be that way? And you can dig way down, and at the end you just go, because God designed it that way. I don't know what else to tell you. 
But for thousands of years, he was laying at the groundwork and laying out a plan and putting things in order, in order that this ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate replacement for your own death would happen. In the garden and the fall of man, death enters the scene. It's the tragedy of mankind. It's the thing even all these years later we still face with a groan in our soul that we die. And there's something wrong with that. We don't like it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel right because it isn't right. It isn't how it was originally made. And yet Jesus dies on our behalf. He sheds blood in the place of our own for those of us that will receive it and those of us that will accept that gift. It was necessary that Jesus do a new covenant. And I told you to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, but I didn't, so I probably should do that too. The whole book of Hebrews is making an elaborate argument about the contradiction of these covenants, these agreements that God has made. He's making the argument that this, this new agreement, this new covenant that God is introducing through His Son, Jesus Christ, is superior to the old one. The covenant with the Jews and the way it was walked out. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but clearly it was to the Hebrews. It's very much written with a, with a, on a, with a bent towards um, the Hebrew practices and the Jewish tradition. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, before I read into verse 8, um, it says this, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's this? He's making this previous argument all to get to this point where he's, he's saying, Jesus is the guarantor of a better agreement. A better agreement. Now, we'll tie all this together with things that make sense for us in our reality today, but I think we can all agree that we could use better at some point in our lives. I remember a day in my life where I could have used and wanted and desired a better agreement with God than I had. My life wasn't working out. I believed there was a God, but I wasn't in alignment with His ways. I hadn't submitted myself to Him. I needed a, a plea bargain here. Make a deal. And I found myself broken before God and Him rescuing me. I needed a new deal because the old one wasn't working. I could never be good enough for God. I could never do everything right enough for God. God is so holy and so powerful, and His ways are so extreme compared to me. I could never measure up to those things. This agreement won't work for me to have to be good enough and earn my way into His favor. I can't do it. I need a better deal. This is what Jesus is introducing that night when He takes that cup and says, new covenant, new deal, new agreement with God's people, an agreement in my blood that he had not yet shed, obviously. Jesus is the guarantor of a better agreement. There's a better way. Isn't it interesting that it's the default thinking of mankind to earn it? We just automatically earn it. We, we have to earn everything. We earn our money. We earn our jobs. We earn our... And then if something isn't earned and somebody just did us a favor or we're, somebody you know, sneaks something in, we feel that's unfair because you didn't earn it. But when it comes to this issue of somehow earning God's love or earning God's favor or earning God's forgiveness or earning God's salvation, we just come up short. 
It's funny that we're that way, and that was the system in many ways, or at least the way the Jews practiced it out, that they would somehow look like they were doing the right thing in order to be pleasing to God. Jesus wreaks havoc on their thinking all that week before, where he challenges them and he stirs them up about whether or not they're really doing what they need to be doing. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 and 7. They... Who is they? He's talking about the gifts and he's talking about the sacrifices that these priests would bring all the time. All, you know, this law, this fulfillment of the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you take See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God gave a pattern to Moses. He showed him something and wanted Moses to fulfill it. It was a reflection of something that God had elsewhere. It was a shadow. It was to serve as a shadow. I want That's just going to be a reoccurring theme throughout the message today. It's a shadow of what actually was. It was a fleshly, earthly demonstration of the reality of what was in heaven. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, I'm in verse 6, that is a much more excellent than the, old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. It was flawed. There was need of another agreement. And these things that they were practicing were only a shadow of the reality. We know that the reality was fulfilled in Christ. The, the shadow of the things that we see in the Old Testament, what God is prophesying and demonstrating through the law, is a shadow of the reality that's about to come. In verse 8 it says, For he finds fault with them when he says. Okay, so God, you know, we're looking forward to the second covenant. It's flawed. I already told you why it's flawed, because it's dependent on men. But in Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Christ, he prophesies a day that this will happen. And they're looking forward to this time where we read this in Jeremiah. And he quotes it, the author of Hebrews. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that which they're celebrating at Passover, they're celebrating that agreement, that covenant. God's saying there's going to be a different one from that. For they do not continue in my covenant. They don't uphold their end. Indeed, they probably can't. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each, each one his neighbor as each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is like blatant contradiction to what the Jews are experiencing. Every year they have to go do these sacrifices because their sins aren't forgotten. They're just continually walking in it and knowing they need a constant, ongoing sacrifice taking place to cover their sins and to cleanse their consciousnesses. 
consciousnesses? Is that a word? Did I say that right? But God is saying something extravagant through Jeremiah, the prophet. I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I'll write my, I will write my ways on their minds and hearts. Well, here we are 2,000 years after he actually does that. How did that happen? He, we became the temple. And his spirit came to live within us that we would actually know the heart of God. You know, the scripture says, you have the mind of Christ. It's in you. His spirit comes and lives in you. It's in there navigating whether you realize it or not. And that's why we start to talk about having a relationship with God. Because he's right there in you, steering you, talking to you, convicting you, challenging you, teaching you. All of these things. It's an amazing thing that God has done for us. And that night when Jesus, however he did it, I don't know. You know, if he lifted up the cup and just said, this is it. It's a new covenant in my blood. It could be shed for you and lots of people will be partakers of it. It was a major moment in the history of the earth that Jesus broke bread with his disciples and said those amazing things that night. There's a need for transformation. One of the things that Jesus was constantly, and we, we talked a lot about it, he was, he was after the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, because they could outwardly demonstrate things. They would go through the motions, but internally they were dead. On the outside, they could make it look like they were something, but in reality, Jesus knew it wasn't there. There's a need for human transformation. Our broken, sinful nature needs transformed. And part of this new covenant that Jesus is talking about in the promise of Jeremiah is this transformation that takes place in the spirit of a human being when they give their life to Christ. In some ways, we die when we do that. The old us dies, and the new us is born. And that's why we call it being born again. There was a need for a covenant that wouldn't just give us actions we can take, but would actually transform our nature that we might draw closer to God. In a way, it's reminiscent of Abraham's covenant because the foundational concept or one of the main things God did is, I will do this for you. That's why it's so important for us to wrestle with the back and forth of whether or not we earn our salvation or not. We do not earn our salvation. We accept it. It's a gift of God, eternal life. Something we simply accept. And that's why we have to hold our ground sometimes on whether or not we're, we're trying to earn our salvation from God. We're, works are very important, and I've talked to you many times about it. I don't want to get into it a bunch today. Works are important. We need to be doing them. We need to be working for sure. But we need to do it with a foundational understanding that we never earned it. It was given to us freely by God. And it had to be because if it depended on us, none of us would make it. We're unable. We're incapable. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, second part of the verse. said, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. It's hard for us to grasp how significant it was to the Jews what Jesus was doing. He was turning their culture upside down. He was very frustrating to them. That's why they killed him. He was totally wreaking havoc on their system. 
And we can look back in time and try and visualize 2,000 years ago and go, those poor Jews. God was turning their whole world upside down. He was bringing transformation. He was bringing a new deal into their world. And it's like, wait a minute, he's doing that for us today. His spirit comes and he stirs us. And we're uncomfortable with our situation and we're at a desperate point in life and our world's being turned upside down. And the whole time it's Jesus going, come to me. Come be with me. Come have fellowship with me. Give up being your own God and make me your Lord. I've paid a way for you. I've made a way. And he, and he, oh man, sometimes we feel like because we believe in Jesus, we're never going to be uncomfortable. Well, that's not true. He's quite comfortable making us uncomfortable. It doesn't bother him a bit. And he does it in order to accomplish his purposes and to discipline us and to grow us in our relationship with him and the ways that we serve him. Once again, God demonstrates to the human race that they need Him. He wants our dependence. That's why our relationship with God has to be primarily on faith. It's the only way it will really work. It's an agreement of dependence on God. Where we just throw ourselves into His arms and say, save me. I can't. It's really all we can do. And I'm sure glad He made it that way. If I had to earn it, this would be a really tough road. So what are the implications of Jesus instituting this new covenant? First, The first one becomes obsolete. Uh, we looked at that scripture last week. That's uh, chapter 8, verse 13 of Hebrews. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And really, a lot of that was fulfilled very quickly in that Passages, the areas of Scripture we call all of that discourse or that time when Jesus is teaching, he starts to talk about the temple being destroyed and all those things, and it happened. I want to say AD 72. It was right down in AD 70. It was about 40 years after Christ's time, the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple because the Jews were always revolting and, and resisting their occupation, and the Romans finally had enough, and they crushed them utterly, and they destroyed the temple. And a lot of those terrible things that Jesus had prophesied came true. And there has never since been a temple for the Jews. And their worship has totally changed since those days. They still celebrate some of the feasts and things like that. There's a lot of debate in their culture about whether there should be any sacrifices at all. Because um, they're not supposed to sacrifice apart from the original temple or the altar. So they don't. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that God started to show that this isn't going to hold up. I'm making a new deal with mankind. And ever since then, it's been that way. That form of worship of God has been unable to be fulfilled. In fact, I've just, you know, again, you can get into the weeds on this stuff. But there, there are things even in their sacrificial processes that would actually be impossible for them to fulfill today because of some of the sacrifices they would have to make. Even if they had a temple, it would be very difficult to fulfill. Why? The old covenant was going away. God was moving from the shadow to the reality this is the picture I want you to have in your head, going from the shadow to the reality. And a lot of times, that's what our situation is. Who you see on the outside of me is a shadow of who I really am. Who am I really is what's inside. This goes away. This isn't all of who I am. It's only a reflection of who I am. You know, there's a famous scripture, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
right? Our flesh reacts to who we actually are. Our actions reflect what's inside of us. Our conduct, the way we demonstrate, shows the reality of who we are. It's a shadow of the reality. The relevance of the Mosaic Law changed. Uh, I already covered all that. It was no longer bound by race. God foretold a day when the faith would go beyond Israel to the Gentiles. This is that moment. Again, you'd have to understand from the Jewish point of view how significant this was. They weren't allowed really to interact with other peoples. Other people were unclean, if you will. It would be violations of their law even. And some foreigners would become believers and they would follow the Jewish uh, traditions. But you have to realize that by God breaking those barriers and this faith going out to the Gentiles was insane, insanely different. And in fact, it becomes one of the most contentious issues in the first century church is trying to figure out how to take this faith to two radically different mindsets. How do the Jews that became believers continue in their belief? How are they supposed to relate to this old and fading covenant? And for all of these Greeks and other nations that are joining the Christian faith, how are they supposed to worship God and not necessarily take on the ancient Jewish customs? And man, you have lots of tension in the first century church between what to do about the Jewish customs and the Gentiles and how, we're, how this blending is going to take place. Probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture is what they call the um, Council at Jerusalem. And they're, they're debating some of these things because there's been a lot of conflict. And James stands up and, and he says one of my favorite things. He said, I don't think we should make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And we begin to see, even in the writings of John, a lot of, if you look with a little bit of trying to understand John's motive in the gospel, a lot of it is dealing with some of that mindset. The first one becomes obsolete. The relevance of the Mosaic law changed. It's no longer bound by race. Every believer would become a temple. We talked about this last week. This is a major shift in God's relationship with mankind. And the shadow is starting to become a reality. The law that shadowed the true thing was starting to become real in people's lives. All those sacrifices that were a foreshadow were fulfilled in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, Jesus says this, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, that'd be fun to dissect that one. But really, it's just to draw attention to the idea that Jesus wanted the heart. It wasn't just the confession of the lips. It wasn't just the walking through the motions and doing all the stuff. He wanted the heart. Otherwise, it's in vain that we worship. Once that internal who we are, it's one of the powerful implications of this new agreement, this new covenant that's being instituted at the Last Supper is that it's not just going to be about the shadow. It's going to be about the reality. Who are you really? Because even if nobody else in the world sees it, God does. And He wants the real thing. He wants to see you transformed through and through, internally, every part of you. He wants to bring healing to those invisible things. He wants to bring transformation to those invisible things. He wants His temple whole and healthy and full of life and His Spirit. That's what He wants for you. But it also gives traction to the idea of having a clear conscience. 
I can actually have a clear conscience knowing that for once and for all time, a sacrifice was made for me that causes my sin to be removed from me as far as the east is from the west. If I can lay hold of that, that promise, that truth, I can operate with a clear conscience. Do I make mistakes? Yes. Does my conscience get violated? Yeah. And can I run to God for forgiveness when my conscience is not lining up? Absolutely, I can. I can have a clear conscience because of this agreement. I couldn't have that under the Old Testament law. I was constantly having to go to God and sacrifice. Sometimes we get into these same kind of habits in our own funny little way. Gosh, I've had, I've been, I'm really out of line. I should go to church. Well, you should. Why? So you can fellowship with the believers and you can worship together and you can hear good teaching. But showing up through the doors doesn't do anything for you. Just attending a service, that's not the point. We're not offering some sort of penance to God by putting our butt in a seat and listening to me talk. God wants us to come together for other reasons, and we should. It's very healthy. It can be part of our transformation and our healing process. But in no way is it somehow going to automatically make you right before God because you went to church. And yet we see that thinking prevalent in our society. He wants the inner man. He wants spiritual rebirth. He wants you to lay hold of this new deal and all of the benefits that come with it. So even though we don't observe the law, there is intrinsic value to knowing about the law. This is important. The Old Testament is not irrelevant. It's very relevant. It teaches us a lot about God. I'm on my soapbox, you guys. I say this to you all the time, I know. But just in case people are here that haven't heard it before, the Old Testament is very relevant. The law is relevant. The stories of Abraham are relevant. The creation stories are all relevant. Why? It's the Word of God. It tells us about God. It's timeless. Jesus was even called the Word. Why? Because he was the fulfillment of what God had spoken. When God speaks something, it's not, it's not weak like what you and I might say. It's something that is stated for eternity. It will always be a part of the component. He spoke and creation happened. That's the power when God speaks. And last week we looked at, you can read the scripture and there will be prophecy can be fulfilled multiple times in multiple ways on small scales and big scales. The word of God can speak to you in the moment. Even though Jesus said stuff 2,000 years ago that tomorrow morning in your quiet time, because you all do that, right? Tomorrow morning in your quiet time, you'll be reading something he said, and it will be as if he said it to you right then and there. And it'll speak right to your situation and right to your soul. And you go, the word of God is alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Goes right to the heart, man. God's word is powerful. And so we would be remiss to pretend like all of those things are irrelevant that God did. Not that we have to walk them out and fulfill them, but they teach us about God. And Paul makes a great argument about this in Romans. Okay, I won't rabbit trail. The other thing I want to talk about briefly about the Last Supper, and this is more from John's angle. The first three Gospels really focus on the bread and the wine. Um, John doesn't mention it at all. And he talks, what he focuses on is the idea that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He got up and he washed their feet. John chapter 13, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 3, okay, I'll just read the first one so you can hear some of the controversy here in terms of timing, but John records it this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
During supper, when the devil had already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter says, Okay, sounds like a good deal. Said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Something awesome that maybe we lose sight of sometimes is that what Jesus did by laying down his life on our behalf, by serving his own disciples by washing their feet, he's, he's, he's turning the system on its head in the sense that he's making us equal, he's making us family, he's not getting into this real structured, priestly, hierarchy situation. He's calling us all not to lord over one another, he teaches elsewhere, but that we would serve one another from the greatest to the least, that everybody would be brothers and sisters in Christ. And his attitude was serving. And as we know, he ultimately to the point of laying down his life. And in his blood sacrifice and that forgiveness of sins, he was serving us. He washed your feet. Did you know that? Jesus washed your feet by what he did. He cleansed you. He did that for you. And it's a powerful part of what he was demonstrating that night at the supper. A great value in serving one another. The heart of this whole, this whole gospel and what takes it to the ends of the earth is not some magnificent power structure, but it is an attitude of service and laying down lives for one another loving one another, extending forgiveness to one another, helping one another along like sheep. Not what everybody wants. They want a powerful, awesome empire, if you will, kind of situation. Not so with God. He made us family. He calls us sheep. He doesn't let us get too arrogant. He keeps us all real humble and moving along together. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm going to have to wrap it up. I didn't get to talk about communion very much. We will be doing communion as a part of our Easter service uh, in a few weeks. Um, but that obviously, this is where we get the concept of communion was from that Last Supper. And Luke particularly mentions one thing, do this in remembrance of me. And he and Paul ran around together, and Paul also says likewise in 1 Corinthians, when you do this, remember. And so that's why we, we reflect back on that night when Jesus broke the bread and he took the cup, he initiated a new covenant for his people. We can, all benefit, we can all benefit from a new deal. 
We all did at some point, most of us. Most of us, I'm preaching to the choir for the most part. I know most of you are believers. Most people don't get out of bed on Sunday morning and randomly decide to go to church if they don't believe in God. Pretty unusual. But yet sometimes those that have a little bit of background in it or a little bit of understanding and they become desperate, they need a new deal, they might find themselves walking through the doors of a church like maybe you did today. We all need a new deal at some point. An agreement with God that He fulfills. A forgiveness of sin. A cleansing of conscience. A moment when the Spirit of God comes and dwells in us. I needed a spiritual transformation. Chances are you did. Or perhaps perhaps today you do. Jesus has extended an invitation to you to simply accept it. Accept Him as the sacrifice. Accept Him as the Lord. Accept Him as the one who's going to walk through the temple of your life and bring cleansing and healing and transformation. I could use a new start. I could use a rebirth. My soul is messed up, Lord. I need to be born again. If that speaks to you today. If you've been running from God for a long time and you just happen to find yourself here today and you would like God to come and bring transformation, then I would invite you. We're going to have a prayer team right up over here as we wrap up the service today. Come up. Don't, 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 leave. don't miss the opportunity. Jesus is extending, hey, this is a new agreement I have for my people. An agreement of forgiveness. Don't let the day pass without letting God come and transform your life. These people up over here when the service ends would love to pray with you. So be sure and join them in doing that. Or if you've been running from God for a long time and like, I need a transformation. I need a new deal with you, God. They'd be happy to pray with you. Don't miss that opportunity to do that today. By his death, he took the punishment that you deserved. Take advantage of that. He rescued you. Let him. Let him. Lord God, we thank you for today. Thank you for your scripture what you've done for us. I, I thank you, Lord, just deeply for that night that you said that. This is a cup, a new covenant that is in my blood that will be shed for you and for many. That your body was broken and your, your blood was spilled, fulfilling that Passover lamb situation, that, 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 that death would pass over us and we would not be eternally punished as we deserve, but that you took our place as the perfect one, that we might have eternal life even now. That transformational power amongst us. So we praise you and we thank you, Lord. I pray that you would work in power amongst all that are here today, that you bless them throughout their week and continue to lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.